And that means that he oversees and helps a number of churches with some of the things that are, they're going through with planning and evaluating and things like that. Um, Mission to the Northeast is the reason you got me. Uh, five years ago, uh, the person who was in his role before that uh, recommended my name, and we started talking. So either after the service, you're going to want to bend David's ear and say, what did you do to us? Or you might even say, it's been okay. So, so you know, this is what uh, David does. Uh, he served in a church in north of Boston, Manchester-by-the-Sea, for around 25 years, and then transitioned into this role, and he also is a transitional pastor, much like Lynn Kent did for us, you know, five-plus years ago. So uh, let's give uh, David a warm welcome, and I'm sure he's going to be speaking to your heart. David. The warranty on your pastor is up. <laughs> it's good to be with you. Um, as David said, I am from Manchester by the sea, and it sounds a little snooty, doesn't it? You can own up to that. Uh, but I've learned that prepositions are very important. It's better, it's better to be from Manchester by the sea rather than from Manchester in the sea. So we'll take that uh, as it is. My um, question to you this morning is, uh, what is your dream church? Maybe it is this one. For some folks, the answer might be, well, the church of the 1950s, the way it used to be. But folks, the 50s aren't coming back. Or maybe it's another church that you dream of. Whenever I visit my parents who live in Greenville, South Carolina, and I drive on a road that's near their home, I will see this sign for a church. It's the First Episcopalian Church of Greenville. Uh, I made that title up, but the byline I did not make up. A New Testament church. And every time I see that descriptor for a church, I play a game in my mind. Really, which New Testament church? Is it uh, the church at Corinth, for example, a church that had a, a whole cadre of, of powerful and much-loved preachers? A church that possessed incredible spiritual gifts, but a church that was also deeply divided, chasmed with sin and discord. Or maybe it's one of uh, the churches in Galatia. Do you know that the Apostle Paul's letter to the church we know as Galatians, it's the only New Testament letter that begins with no affirmation of those churches whatsoever? Uh, I bet I know which would be your dream New Testament church. It's probably your favorite letter in the New Testament, the church of Philippi. Really? Do you remember the name of the two women, Yodia and Syntyche? Uh, they were not playing nice together in the church sandbox. 
Warren Wiersbe says of them that one was odious and the other soon touchy. Yeah. On the bulletin board over my desk in my study at home, there's a list of 35 men. Those 35 men I was privileged to mentor through their seminary education and their preparation for pastoral ministry. David's not on that list. During the course of their time with me, I would give them an article that's titled uh, Sacred Discontent. And it raises the question I raised with you at the outset. Uh, Which church do you love? The church as it is or the church of your imagination? There ought to be on our part a, a discontent with the church. But there's a particular kind of discontent that we ought to have because there can be an unholy discontent or a holy discontent. That is an aspiration for things to be better than they are, but not expressed in a divisive, uncaring kind of way. Uh, If we don't have uh, a holy discontent with things as they are, we can slip into uh, something I I would label as as apathy, that we just don't care about things being any different or any better or making a stronger difference in our community and in our world. I have a dream church. Um, It's described for us in the book of Acts in chapter 2, and you might like to turn there. I'd encourage you to do that. I want to point out some um, descriptors of uh, what I would call a a dream church. Uh, It's a passage that's familiar to most of you, I'm sure. It's it's a description of what uh, happened in the early church um, shortly after Pentecost. Uh, we do well to be mindful that, um, that it's written by a historian, by, by Luke, and what he's doing is simply giving us a historical description of what happened in the early days of the church. I, I choose the word description carefully because we're not commanded to be like this church. It's not given to us as a prescription. It's simply a description. But I would suggest to you that it could be a church of aspiration for us, for us to aspire to be something like this church in its early days. Uh, The dream church, as I see this church uh, uh, resembling my own imagination, it is a church, first of all, that's alive with learning of Jesus. Every day the apostles were teaching these early disciples. They were learning just as the apostles had sat at the feet of Jesus. So these new Christians, these new believers were sitting at the feet of, at the, feet of the apostles and, and they were learning of Jesus. 
they were learning about the God-man, the God who had come in flesh and entered into our broken world, a world that originally had been created good in the sight of God, its creator, and but a world that quickly became seriously damaged and broken, and, and that God in Jesus Christ had entered our world to begin the work of repairing that world and putting it back together again. They were learning of Jesus. And a dream church, in my view, I take it from this description, uh, would be a church that's committed to always learning of Jesus, but not not so you and I could win Bible trivia. That we would continue to learn of Jesus, to walk with him, to love him, and to know that he walks with us and is loving us as well. So I would suggest to you that it, we would do well to aspire to be like this church and that it's committed to learning of Jesus. But a second quality I see of this church is that it's a church that was committed to worshiping the living God. They were a living church because they were a worshiping church, worshiping the living God. Uh, there's a couple of qualities about their worship that I especially appreciate Everyone was filled with awe. We're, we're told that. Now, I have to say that the word awe or awesome uh, has, fallen, has been somewhat cheapened. Uh, taking my son, Scotty, when he was a little guy, about five years old, down to Captain Dusty's at the Inner Harbor in Manchester by the sea to, to buy him an ice cream cone, and I'd say, Scotty, how's that ice cream? Oh, it's awesome. This was a church that was committed to worshiping an awesome God. They had what I'd call a holy fear of God. Do you know there's a difference between a holy fear and an unholy fear of God? This church had a holy fear, an awesome respect for God. You say, well, David, what's the difference between a, a holy fear of God and an unholy fear? And I confess I struggled a little bit to really figure out how to explain that. And then I hearken back to a story that comes out of my own childhood. When I was in the first grade, I attended um, an elementary school in Fairfield Center, Maine. And our family lived in this little village of a place called Norwich Walk. One day, while we were at school, I could hear sirens off in the distance, and soon smoke, the smell of smoke, was filtering through to us in the school building, and we learned that the, the barn next door to our school building had caught fire, and it was deemed that it was perfectly safe for us to continue to be in school for that day. We were dismissed by our teacher to go downstairs to the washroom, and uh, one of my fellow students said to me, uh, are you afraid? I shook my head, no. But then I began to be afraid at the suggestion that maybe I might be. <laughs> so what did little David Forsyth do? 
six years old, he went back up to the classroom and gathered his school papers from underneath the desk and went out the front door and trudged across the field, stepping over fire hoses, and I made my way home for six miles away. We lived way out in the Willywax, and I would hear a, a logging truck, a popo truck, come lumbering down the road behind me, and I'd scamper off into the woods until it was safely by, and I'd go back out. A woman stopped along the way, having recognized me and offered me a ride home, and I, I said, no, I'd been taught not to ever accept rides from strangers. I walked, I ran, I beat the school bus home. I show up panting and all flushed, and my mother comes to the door and said, David, did you walk all the way home? I said, no, I ran part of the way. <laughs> Fast forward to two years ago, the end of last month. I retired as a senior call firefighter for our town having answered more calls than any other call firefighter in the history of the department. And I'd seen my, more than my fair share of heavy fire and interior attack and multiple alarm uh, circumstances. What I had in the first grade was an unholy fear of fire. What I had... 28 years was a holy fear of fire, that it could be approached, not to be run away from in certain circumstances. This church had that. It had a holy fear of God, a God who's approachable, but to be looked upon as awesome and to be respected. Another quality, sort of on the other side of this, is that it was a church that worshipped with incredible joy. They praised God. And who of all people but the people of God, the people who are in love with Jesus and are walking with him, who of all people ought to have a deep-seated sense of joy and even the ability to laugh together as a people... But for the people of the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, a people who know that he's in the process of putting his world back together again. Well, my dream church, as Luke describes it, is, is a church that's, uh, that's learning of Jesus constantly, and it's a church that's worshiping the living God. Oh, there's a third descriptor I would draw from this passage. Not only is it a church that's learning of Jesus, not only is it a congregation that's, um, that's worshiping the living God, but it's a church that's committed to caring, caring for one another, loving each other, supporting one another, and meeting one another's needs. It happens with attitude, first of all. If you're going to really be a caring people, it begins with attitude, and I could best uh, 
demonstrate that with a, just a quote from um, a woman whose name is Nancy Ortberg. Maybe you know the name John Ortberg. Uh, he wrote uh, several books, one of which is The Life You've Always Wanted, which is a book on spiritual disciplines. Uh, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. My favorite title of his is, uh, which I haven't quite gotten the courage up to read yet, but the title is um, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. <laughs> Nancy Ortberg tells of a time when um, she and her daughter came home from a service at the church that they were a part of, and her daughter wrote this note that said, help me not to be okay when everything is okay with me. She had learned something at the church service earlier that day, that something wasn't okay with someone in their church. And she wanted to have nothing to do with the attitude would say, I'm okay, so I'm going to be okay. She learned what it was, that even every, though everything was going well for her personally at the moment, that she wasn't going to be okay because something was not right for someone else. That's an attitude. That's an attitude. The, the early church was a dream church from my perspective in this situation described for us by Luke because they were people who cared for one another. And it begins with attitude. I saw it on display out here in your entry area. On the bulletin board, there's a dozen to 15 thank you notes that demonstrate, I read them, that demonstrate that you are a caring congregation, that you lift up one another's burdens your sorrows, and your griefs, and your heartaches. It begins with attitude. But it also, a caring community, demonstrates itself by being a community of action. I served for my first transition pastor at the First Baptist Church up in Rockland, Maine. I was there for 21 months. There was a young boy in a, his uh, older sister who came faithfully to worship. Uh, almost every Sunday morning, they sat down toward the front. They participated in the singing and so on. And I began to learn something of their story. Their mom had had three or four other children as well, and um, by different men, apparently. Um, the man that was living with them, and I think the father of Bianca and, and Mike, uh, um, was out of work. The family had become so destitute that, yes, even in the midst of winter, they were unable, they had fallen far behind in paying their utility bills. The power com company actually shut off the electricity to their apartment. We learned about that, and folks in the congregation made sure that the electric bill was was paid up. Power was restored. The following Thanksgiving, we, we had a Thanksgiving testimonial service, and we had a microphone down front, and I will never forget the moment 
to my surprise when Bianca got up and walked down to the microphone, only about eight or nine years old, and she simply told the story, and she said this, I will never forget what this church has done for us. That's a caring congregation as attentive to the needs of those both within the congregation and those who are on the fringes and out on the margins as well. Uh, so a dream church, from I think Luke's perspective and, and my own as I've thought about this, is it's a church that continues to learn of Jesus, the church that worships the living God together. It's a church where love and care for one another is tangibly demonstrated both in attitude and, and in action. Uh, the last quality I, I see in, in this description that's given to us is that it's a church that's alive with bearing a faithful witness to the world. It was not an insular church. Uh, they met in the temple precincts to begin with, as well as in their homes, but they were engaged with their community. Uh, we learn at the end of the day of Pentecost that some 3,000 people are drawn to Jesus through the witness of this congregation. Uh, they bore witness to the extended community through... Um, they're gathering together faithfully for worship. They, they witnessed through the kind of worship in, that they engaged in. And people came into their midst, as I suspect some of you have come into the midst of this congregation, and you've said to yourself at least, wow, God must be in this people. That certainly was true of the early church. You know, there's something significant going on here. I want to be a part of it. I want to know this Jesus that these people speak about and they read about and they sing about and they, and they preach about. Now, I will grant you that um, it was an easier audience, in a sense, in that particular setting. But you read through the book of Acts, the story of the church, and you'll see that wherever the church went, wherever it established itself, whatever community, it was always engaged with the community. You see, the church is, um, participates in what we could call a gospel of adaptability. Now, the gospel never changes. The good news of Jesus, having come in the flesh, of, of sins forgiven, and the possibility is there for us to have a restored relationship with God and our Creator, that never changes. But you see what's modeled for us by the book of Acts is that the church was always adapting to changing cultures wherever it went out into the world. Think about this for a moment. What if a first-century Christian happened to wander into this building on a Sunday morning? I love to think about stuff like this. <laughs> what would they ask? 
Uh, would they readily discern that this was a Christian congregation? If so, what would be the markers of that? Certainly not your padded chairs. They stood for worship. Can that really be a Christian congregation? They sit in padded chairs on Sunday morning? And, and what's all this stuff? All the technology? No, they'd listen to the preaching. This a group of people that talks about Jesus and loves him. Um, is this a congregation that expresses love for God in its worship? Uh, they wouldn't even understand how and uh, what the music is that we do. But they could discern if we're learning of Jesus and loving him in our worship. And they'd learn something about whether or not we're a caring community of Jesus' followers. And they'd, they would look to see, is this a group of people that's concerned about engaging with its world and communicating the gospel? Those would be the markers. Not the type of music we do. Not the kind of buildings we have. All the things that can change over time. But those four descriptors, they are constants wherever the church is. Now I know in your notes, because I wrote them for you, I asked the question, what do all four of these have in common? It's one key word. It's all about relationships. The one thing these four hold in common is relationship. There's a relationship that God's people have with Jesus himself as they sat at the feet of the apostles who had sat at the feet of Jesus. It's about relationship with Jesus. In their worship, it's about their relationship with God expressed in their singing and, yes, in their preaching and in their praying. The relationship is emphasized in that they care for one another. It's, they've moved from the, the, the vertical to the horizontal of loving each other, and that in itself bears witness to the world. And then lastly... Because they're engaged with community, they're concerned about their relationship with the world that's on the fringe or on the margins of that congregation's life. Uh, there is, in my own mind, a, a, a logical sequence to these. It begins with Jesus, moves to worship, moves through the congregation and relationship, and is committed to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus. And these aren't flash in the pan kind of things that you can take or leave. They are at the core of a Christian congregation's life. If you notice at the outset of the paragraph, it says that they devoted themselves to these things. And the word devoted there is in a form. This is as grammatical as I'm going to get on you today. <laughs> 
it has a durative translation effect to it. This was durative. They were committed in an enduring way to these things. They couldn't be swapped out or changed up, swapped out for something else new and different. The other thing we learn is that they, um, the English translation says that they were all together in one place. Now, there's a way in which you can be all together united. You're here physically in this room together. But the word that Luke uses isn't talking about people being gathered in one place. What he's saying to them, uh, about them, is that they were united in mind and in heart. And when a congregation is united in mind and heart, committed to loving Jesus, to worshiping the living God, to caring for one another, and to being engaged with this world, that's a church that God will use to make a difference, a big difference in its community and beyond. One of my favorite authors is John Stott, now with the Lord, but for many, many years was pastor of All Souls Church in London, England. And he was invited well into his retirement to come back to the church to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the construction of the All Souls Church. And he offers a little bit of an explanation. It wasn't called All Souls Church in order to honor the dead. It was named All Souls Church purposely to say that there are room for all souls within this parish to be here in this building. And um, he, uh, with apologies and acknowledgement to Martin Luther King, uh, wrote a concluding word to his sermon uh, called, I Have a Dream. I want to share a couple of excerpts with you uh, uh, from it. He says, I have a dream of a church which is a biblical dream, which is loyal in every particular to the revelation of God in Scripture, whose pastors expound Scripture with integrity and relevance, and so seek to present every member mature in Christ, whose people love the Word of God and adorn it with an obedient and Christ-like love. I have a dream of a biblical church. I have a dream of a church which is a worshiping church whose people come together to meet God and worship him, who know God is always in their midst and who bow down before him in great humility, who regularly frequent the table of the Lord Jesus to celebrate his mighty act of redemption on the cross. I have a dream of a worshiping church. I have a dream of a church which is a caring church, whose congregation is drawn from many races, nations, ages, and social backgrounds, and exhibits the unity and diversity of the family of God, whose fellowship is warm and welcoming, and never marred by anger, selfishness, jealousy, or pride, whose members love one another with a pure heart, fervently forbearing one another, forgiving one another, and bearing one another's burdens, whose love spills over to the world outside, attractive, infectious, irresistible, the love of God himself. I have a dream of a caring 
church. That's my dream church. Dream church that uh, is in love with Jesus and always learning of him. Church that's drawn together to worship the living God. A church that cares deeply for one another, its members, people on the fringes. And a church that's committed to being engaged with its world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us, for coming intentionally so that your own body might be staked to a Roman execution rack, dying in our place. Thank you that you are the living Lord now, and we can walk with you and learn of you. Thank you, God, for um, revealing yourself to us through your Son and through your Word. Thank you for the love of God that has been shared in our lives, and that love is extended as we love and care for one another. And we thank you that you've called us to participate in your gospel's proclamation by being engaged with our world. We pray that these marks will be deeply ingrained in each of us and in your people collectively. For these things we pray in Christ, our loving Savior's name. Amen.